So as we begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, it says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Last summer, we went out to spend some time with my mom and dad, and then we also got to see Lisa's older sister, Debbie, and, and her husband, Keith, and they had bought some new punting property. It's up north of Spokane. It's up in the, in the woods and in the mountains there a little bit. So we went and spent the day up there with them on their property. When we were first on the driveway, working our way up the mountain, we saw a moose. So we got out and looked at the moose for a minute. And then hopped back in the car and then continued our way up to the property. And there's all kinds of tracks and signs of moose all over their property. They're pretty thick there. And then they also have bears and wild turkey. And at one point... Keith got up and he went wandering down this path. And then all of a sudden he heard this yell and he come running back up and he had just about stepped on a turkey and that turkey took off and scared him. And <laughs> we all wanted to see it. So we got up and went walking down and we couldn't find the turkey. I don't know where it went. And then we walked down this path. And again, there's there's sign of everything there, moose and bear. On our way back, we stopped and we're kind of right by this ravine. There was a huge disturbance in the brush in this ravine. And Lisa grabbed me by the elbow and took off like a shot up the trail. The only problem was I was a pretty formidable anchor. And I was curious what the rumble was in the brush. <laughs> and so I was looking to see what the rumble was in the brush. And she's yanking on my arm to get... I guess she figured maybe if we got a head start, we could beat the others involved <laughs> and, and come out all right. I saw it as a curiosity moment. She saw it as a run moment. Well, you know what, that's, that's just the kind of incidents that we're coming up to in the Bible here in 1 Corinthians. It's a moment, it's an issue that he's dealing with within the church. And he says, look, this issue here, this is a run moment. In fact, that's exactly what he tells us about halfway through the passage. We find his proposition in verse 18. He says, flee. No curiosity, no take a look. Flee from sexual morality. What is he saying? Just simply put, look, it's time to run. You know, in the Bible, that's, that's always the response that it looks for in our lives when it comes to temptations of a sexual nature. Run. Flee. Get out of there. And we've got good reason for that. We've got good examples. Or maybe I should say a good example and a bad example. You look at Joseph. Joseph was a handsome young man that God blessed pretty much everything Joseph put his hand to. And Potiphar's wife took a shine to Joseph. And if you look back in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis, you'll find the story. But she took a shine to Joseph and she started trying to get Joseph to participate with her in a physical way. And Joseph wouldn't do it. He would not lie with her as she asked him to. And he also tried to just stay completely away from her to avoid the whole situation. 
But one day he was in a room doing some things where he had business there and she came and approached him in that room. He turned to try to get out of there and she grabbed him by the coat that he had on and he just slipped his arms out of it and out of the room he went and he took off. Well, that is a positive example. That is somebody doing exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to do, which is in the face of sexual temptation, just look, just run, flee, get away from it. Don't try to argue with it. Don't try to talk to it. Just get out of there. That's what you need to do. We have a negative example also from a person that other than that was pretty God-fearing. We think of David. David was known as a man after God's own heart. But one day when he should have ran, he looked. One day he's on his palace roof when he happens to look over into the neighboring property and in the neighboring property was a young woman, Bathsheba, about ready to take a bath. And rather than running, he looked. And one thing led to another, which led to a pregnancy and a child. Also ended up leading to the murder of her husband as David tried to cover it up. Joseph fled. Joseph ran from the temptation for this kind of sin. And he was blessed by God. David succumbed to it. And though he would be forgiven, dealt with consequences from that action for the whole rest of his life. And you know what? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthian church to be able to avoid. He wants them to be blessed like Joseph and not uh, have the consequences of sin in their life like David. And you know what? That's the same thing that God wants for us. God wants His blessing upon us. God wants us to find our ultimate satisfaction within Him Himself and be satisfied with the situation that He has us in in our life at the moment and govern our life according to His Word. And so, avoid the negative consequences that come from disobedient actions. Well, in this passage, there's definitely a lot of focus on this particular sin. If we back up to chapter 5... Chapter 5, verse 1, he brings out a specific case. And he says, look, it's actually reported that there's sexual morality among you. And then he goes into the specifics of that case within the church and commands the church to cast that person out of the church to exercise church discipline in order to bring that person around. And if not, at least to protect the purity of the church, protect other people from that sin growing throughout the congregation and protect the glory of God. Well, when you get to verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then notice, he broadens it. He says, or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. So he started out dealing with just sexual immorality, and then he broadened it. And he says, look, if any of these sins are within our lives or within the church, we need to deal with these sins. And that's what commonly people point out about this passage is that sexual morality is just one of the sins in the list of sins. It's not the only one. And that's absolutely true. He broadens the category here uh, and he broadens the subject. So he goes from dealing with the one specific individual with a specific sin, which was sexual morality, and then he broadens it to the whole church, a principle that we're to live by, and he broadens the sin to a whole categories of sins. And then he goes into chapter 6. At the very end of that passage, verse 9, he does the same thing again. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, then the good news. He says, that's what some of you were, but you guys, you've been washed. You've been sanctified, set apart for God, justified, forgiven of your sins in Christ. 
But here's the deal. He started with a specific case, then he broadened it to a broader categories of sins and more people. But then notice what happens in, the, in this part of chapter 6 that we're in now. Now he starts to refocus again. In verse 13, the last part of it says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And later in verse 18, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so he refocuses it back down to this one sin. So here's the deal. For some reason, sexual immorality is getting more ink than any of the other sins. Why? I want to know why. It may be a few different things. Maybe it's just because that church is dealing with that issue right now. Maybe that's the reason that he's emphasizing it so much. Maybe it's because of that leaven principle. What was it? Verse 6, I think it was, of chapter 5. He talks about how a little leaven, leaven picturing sin within the church, can leaven the whole lump. It doesn't just stay the same. It spreads. And other people find the courage to participate in the same kind of sins that they see other people getting away with. Although, he did already tell them to exercise church discipline along those lines, which is supposed to stop that leaven principle. Or it could be, is there something about sexual morality itself that makes it worse? You know, there's a common saying out there within Christianity that I just really do not like. And it is, is all sin is sin. Well, there is a measure of it that's true. If you're saying by that statement that any sin will get you separated from God, then I agree with you. That's, I, that's, I think that's biblical wholeheartedly. But to say that every sin is the same ignores a lot of things in the Bible. One, when all the judgments were handed out back in Moses' day, all sin did not get the same punishment. They were not all treated equally, right? Because some sins are lesser and some sins are greater. Jesus even talked about weightier matters of the law and lesser matters of the law. And so, all sin is sin does not mean that all sin are the same and it's just no big deal. I struggle with this, you struggle with that. Ah, it's all the same. It's just not true. Also, when we see within this passage that God says that there are some sins that are of a different nature, a different kind. Maybe it's because there's something about the nature of sexual sin itself that requires more ink on the page, requires more focus, requires more diligence, requires a trigger maybe to run faster than you do even in other temptations. It could be partially all of these things. But there is definitely something about sexual sin that is a bigger entrapment than most anything else we face. If you don't believe that, turn on the TV for a little while. Turn on the TV and look at what they're using to try to entice you to buy just about everything. And you'll find that overwhelmingly they use this passion that is hugely destructive to people and at the same time very enticing to our sinful nature. Well, as we look at the passage here this morning, the, the, the proposition is simple. Just he said to flee from sexual temptation. Why? Well, in this passage, there's three different reasons why we need to run from sexual temptation. First of all, I think the reason is that it's destructive. It's very harmful to you as an individual. It's very harmful to families. It's very har- harmful to uh, relationships. Sexuality is, is wonderful and a beautiful experience within the marriage relationship where God designed it to be. In fact, God created it. God commanded it. But one of the reasons that he gives us right here is that it is destructive. In fact, he heightens it. He says, look, every other sin that you commit is outside your body. This one, you're sinning against your own body. And, and you know what? To be honest with you, 
I don't totally know what that means. I've studied this passage many times over my years as a Christian and, and I've never really known what that means very well. And read commentaries and stuff from other godly people that are studying this passage and, and you know what? They don't seem to know any more than I do. I think that sexual sin does more to us than we understand. Sexuality, I think, is so much deeper. I think it's a deeper experience than we can even get our minds around. Started that way right from the get-go. Right in the beginning. What does God say about the man and the woman? The two shall become one. Well, what all does that encompass? One physically, obviously, in sexuality. One spiritually, emotionally. One in volition, in goals, in, in direction of what we're doing with our relationship and our family. There are just so many ways, so many things that that touches on. Two, two people becoming one. Even if somebody goes to a prostitute, that means they're going to somebody that they have no relation with. No relationship. This isn't, a, this isn't an expression of something deep within themselves that they, that they have for one another and a commitment that they've both stood before others and said, and before God and said, I am all in. This is not that at all. This is, this person doesn't even probably know their name. And the Bible says, even in that expression of a sexual nature, it says the two in some sense become one. How does that happen? You know, I remember uh, an activity with our teenagers once several years ago where a young woman came in and taught our teenagers and she described it this way. In fact, she took sheets of, uh, what was it? I think it was construction paper or something and she like glued them together. She says, this is what happens during sex. Two become one. But then you're not staying with that person. And it kind of sat aside for a few minutes. Then she took that same paper and she tore it apart. And what happened, parts of this paper stayed on parts of this paper. Parts of this paper stayed on parts of this paper. And both of them were ripped apart. And she says, look, this is what the Bible teaches that happens to us as individuals. Two become one, but you're not going to stay that way. It's, it's like in construction when I tear up subfloor off of the floor joist. You glue those things down and you nail them down and you pull the nails and you rip up the sheets of plywood and part of the plywood always stays stuck to the floor joist. Part of the floor joist always stays stuck to the plywood and it just about destroys them both. And the Bible says that's what happens within that sexuality. That's why it's so important to have that sexuality within the realm that God designed it for. Inside that realm, it's great. Outside of that realm, it's destructive. He starts right from the beginning of verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. This is not something that is helpful in your life. If it was helpful to us, it would be something God wanted us to participate in. The Apostle Paul says this is not helpful. In fact, it's damaging. This is damaging even to you physically, your own body. Proverbs chapter 5 deals extensively with sexuality and it's a advice that his parents are giving to a young man. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 through 6 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, which is just another word for hell. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not even know it. You see, that's, that's what happens within sexual sin. There are things happening to you that you don't, even, you don't even know. In fact, that's one of the biggest parts of the deceptiveness of sin, that the deeper we get into sin, the more blinded we are to the damaging effects that it has in our life. And so we just keep following that same path to our own destruction. 
Well, a couple verses later, in verses 7 through 8, he says, And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And so notice the, the advice that the proverb that the parents are giving to this young man is the same advice that the Apostle Paul is giving to the Corinthians. Run. <laughs> do not go near her. Don't stop and listen. Stay away from her door. This is why they want him to listen to him. Verses 9 and 10. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. So what exactly is he saying there? My labors going to somebody else? My strength going to somebody else? Let's use one of today's poets. Well, let's go to music. Toby Keith got a song, Who's That Man? And what does he say? That's my house and that's my car. That's my dog in my backyard. There's the window to the room where she lays her pretty head. I planted that tree out by the fence not long after we moved in. That's my kids and that's my wife. Here's the question. Who's that man running my life? He talks about a man who's driving down a familiar road, one that used to be his way home, pulls onto a familiar street, sees a familiar driveway and a familiar house. Why? Because it was his efforts and his labor that bought all of that. Now all that stuff that he did, somebody else's. How much wealth from different individuals in our societies are giving out some of their strengths, some of their resources every month to pay child support for kids they don't get to see that often, paying spousal support for kids. Look, if, if that's the kind of stuff you want going on in your life, then sexual morality is the place for you. No, no fool wants that to be the outcome in their life. And that's exactly what Proverbs was telling us. This sin is destructive. It destroys. It destroys individuals. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, No sin that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, problems, and destructiveness than sexual sin. It has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating, and killing, as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. Why does God want us to run? Because there's something worth running from. Proverbs gives us the plus side of that. Same chapter, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoiced in the wife of your youth. He finishes by saying, Be intoxicated always in her love. You see, God says that's the appropriate place. That can be beautiful. Outside of that, destructive. How many sexually transmitted diseases are around our communities? because of this thing. There are just so many different levels that you can be damaged on from this particular sin. And I think that's a big part of why God is spending the extra ink on it. Not only is it destructive, it's domineering. Because notice what he says right after that, still in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The all things are lawful phrase, I think, needs a little bit of time. He's not just saying, look, it's okay. It's actually okay if you want to get involved in this sin. He's not saying that at all. He does uh, kind of use that, I think, a little bit for uh, dealing with food. So apparently, they used to have a saying in Corinth, food, the belly, the belly, the food. Food's for eating. The food and the belly, they go together. It doesn't matter. He's okay with that. He says, you know what? The food's for the belly and the belly's for food. That's okay because God's going to destroy them both. Not a big issue. 
But then notice he goes on when he gets into sexual morality, he says sexual morality is not like that. In other words, this is not one of those categories. The Corinthians saw it as one. Many in our society see it the same way. It's just another appetite. You have an appetite for food, satisfy the appetite. You have an appetite for sexual things, satisfy that appetite. God says through the Apostle Paul here, sexuality is not in the same category as food. The body is for Christ and Christ for the body. Everything was pretty much lawful in Corinth when it came to sexuality. To go visit a prostitute was referred to by other people as Corinthianizing. That's how prevalent it was in that society. But notice, even though that was that prevalent in that society, what does the Bible still call it? Immoral. Morality is not defined by the culture that is around you. Morality is defined by the Word of God. That's what defines morality. Don't let anything domineer you. Don't let anything control you. You know, Romans goes on to talk about it a little bit more in depth. In verses 12 through 14, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Just as Christ died for your sin, now you're dead to your sin. Just as Christ is now alive for you, He overcame death, you have a new life to be lived out in Him. And so we should not be brought into bondage to the same old sinful desires and appetites that we were in bondage to before Christ came into our life. That wouldn't make any sense at all. And look at what we find when we look at sexual morality. The word that's used for sexual morality in this passage is the same as it was in the previous passages in Corinth here that we dealt with. It's the word pornea. It's the most general term dealing with sexual sins. In other words, all of the other sexual sins can kind of get fit inside of this term. It encompasses everything. Pornography, I think you can throw adultery in there, fornication, homosexuality, all of it would fit inside of this one word. What do we see when we look across our society? We find addictions to all those things. It almost seems to be limitless the amount of ways that people can get addicted to this particular type of sin. And that's exactly what God is saying. I want to keep you from the destructiveness that happens in those. All of those things are damaging. They, they destroy even your ability to enjoy, enjoy sexuality the way God intended to. Uh, ways of participating in this activity will destroy even that. God says it will be Lord in your life. And there's only one person that should be on the throne in the life of a Christian. And that's Christ. And that's the point that he's making. Now, that brings us to our last point. The last point, not only is it destructive, not only is it domineering, and then lastly, it is defiling. So look at the passage. It, it gets very, what I want to call it, bold, blunt. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And then the loud shout of never. Now he's getting very practical. And he's saying, look, you're for Christ. Christ is you. you. Remember when we were going through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians kept using that phrase to describe Christians. We're in Christ. We're in Him. We're in the Beloved. You're the body of Christ. Christ is in you. And you are in Him. It's not like you can separate yourself. And so whatever you do, whatever you participate in, guess what? You're taking Him with you. And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, am I going to use the body of Christ to go into a prostitute? Never. The thought of that is, is mortifying. But he says, that's exactly what's happening. He says, you're defiling Christ. 
when you participate in this kind of a thing, and He is part of you, and you are part of Him. And it's not like you can set Him aside for certain activities. It's, can we participate in this kind of behavior? Dragging Him into it? Boy, if that isn't some motivation to get on the right track, or to stay on the right track, is it not? When we're faced with that temptation, we're not often realizing the destructiveness. We're not often realizing how how domineering it'll be coming in our life. And we're not realizing what we're defiling. You are made in the image of God and now as you're redeemed, you're growing more and more in the image and the likeness of Christ. Are you then going to take that likeness and participate in sin? Absolutely not. He uses the, the Son. He gets the whole Trinity involved in this. He's going to talk about the Son. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And he's going to talk about the Father. The Son in the beginning. Now you're in Christ. He's in you. Are you going to use the members, the parts of Christ's body, which you are, to go into a prostitute? No way. But then he shifts gears and he shifts to dealing with the Holy Spirit. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, back in the Old Testament, when they were wandering around the wilderness, they had the tabernacle. Right? And the tabernacle was a tent. That's what the word tabernacle means. And they had this tent uh, that was God's tent. All the Israelites had tents that they lived in as they traveled around in the wilderness. And God had His tent. When they got to the place where they were residing, God's glory would stop and then they would build the tent right underneath it. And then so you had the glory of God that was shining during the night with a pillar of fire and it was a pillar of cloud during the day to always signify the presence of God. This is where God lives. But later, they're going to build the temple. And when Solomon goes to build the temple, he recognizes, he says, Lord, we're not so foolish as to think that any building can really contain you. But we recognize that it symbolizes your presence. And we want you to be with us. Well, they took this temporary tabernacle that they moved around everywhere with and they made a permanent building in the temple. And what is the temple? The temple is the house of God. It is what's seen as the dwelling place of God and where His glory rests. Now, when we get up to the New Testament, where's the temple? The temple becomes two different things. Earlier in this book, it reused the word temple there too. It's talking about the Christians when they were fighting with one another. They were exercising all this disunity. And he says, you know what? You're destroying God's temple. And if you think God's going to sit back and let you destroy His temple without some consequences, you're sadly mistaken. So what was the temple? The temple is used in one sense of the church. That the church is the temple of God. And the church gathered. The people gathered together. That's where the Holy Spirit of God resides. is within the temple, within the church in our day. The temple of God is the church, not the building, the people. But then it's used in an individual way also. The Bible in a couple different places in the New Testament also uses the word temple to talk about not us collectively as a church, but us individually. It's appropriate because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. He indwells you. What is the dwelling place for God? Where does God dwell today? God dwells in us collectively as a church and God dwells in us individually as believers. And so now he's saying, when you participate in this sin, you're defiling the temple of God. Your body is the temple of the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And if you participate in this sin, you are defiling the temple of God. One commentator wrote this. He said, we would be mortified as Christians to think of somebody committing an, a sexually immoral act within 
the church building within our auditorium, our sanctuary. He said, but for a Christian to participate in this sin is just as defiling to the temple of God, to the dwelling place of God, as if it was done right in the church building. You know why? Because the church building is not the church. We are. This church building, this houses the church. This is not the church. We are the church. And you, as a believer, are that temple of God, that dwelling place for God. So we need to make sure that we stay away from this sin. When we come across temptations toward this sin, the only proper response is what? To run and run fast. Why is that the only proper response? Because that sin, more than any other sin, is destructive. They're all destructive, but this one is on another level. That sin is destructive. That sin is domineering. It's not going to let you be in charge for long. It's going to be the master. You're going to be the slave. And that sin is defiling to Christ and you as the temple of the Holy Spirit.